And when I heard that, uh, this is a standalone weekend. We start this new series next week, Exile, looking at the book of Daniel, or the story of Daniel. And so I wanted to just follow on from that. And the title of this message is When a Cave Becomes Home. When a Cave Becomes Home. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. It's an episode from the life of Elijah, a prophet to Israel at a horrendous time in their history when a dreadful king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, ruled in the nation. And uh, Elijah has this incredible prophetic ministry, amazing supernatural things happen. But there comes a point in his life where he hits a wall uh, emotionally, and he is anxious, and he is depressed, and that's what we're going to talk about um, this weekend. The Bible reading I'm about to share is fairly lengthy. I just warn you about that. I'm not making any apology for it, because the most important thing that will be said from this platform this weekend is not what I say about Scripture, but what Scripture says itself. So 1 Kings chapter 19 says this, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the way he'd killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, may the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I've not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid, fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord told him, go back the same way you came, travel to the wilderness of Damascus, when you arrive there, anoint Hazel to be king, over, uh, king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel and Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu. Those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I preserve 7,000 others in Israel 
who've never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. I preach a a lot. Um, I've I've said this before. Um, I preach a lot. That means I listen to me a lot. And um, uh, I said to my wife one time, I said to Kay, I I preach so much, I get sick of the sound of my own voice. And she smiled knowingly and said, I understand completely (laughs) how you feel. Over the last 30 or 40 years, I've probably preached in a thousand local churches. Uh, When I'm not here at Timberline, I'm somewhere else. (laughs) 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 Write that down. That was pretty deep, people. Um, And I've I've bopped around with charismatics, and and I've been with Baptists, and I've sung six-part harmonies with Mennonites, and I've uh, I've sung with the brass band with the Salvation Army, and uh, it's been a, a wonderful experience. But sometimes people say to me, what was your scariest, most nerve-wracking speaking engagement? And I know immediately, without any hesitation, I know how to answer that. Uh, it happened a few years ago. I was the speaker for the national prayer breakfast that was held uh, in Westminster Hall in Parliament in London. Uh, here in the USA, there's the presidential prayer breakfast that happens annually in Washington D.C., and they have a counterpart with it, uh, an annual event, uh, members of parliament gather, uh, sometimes the prime minister comes. And uh, it was, uh, frankly, terrifying. Uh, The night before you speak, you attend a service at Westminster Abbey with the Queen's chaplain, and there's pomp and ceremony. Now, you need to understand this. I'm a a blue-collar family, uh, from the wrong side of the railroad tracks. And um, I got into this circle, and it's the Queen's Chaplain. And, and everybody speaks a little bit like this. And they're super lovely and jolly and good. That looks splendid. <laughs> and there's me, all right, you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. Oh, lovely, super. <laughs> in fact, I started to speak a little bit like this. I found myself saying, oh, lovely, how are you? <laughs> Kay looked at me like, have you been mugged by a posh demon or something, you know? <laughs> and then uh, you address a small gathering in the Speaker's house, the Speaker of the House of Commons that night, and then the next morning you go to Westminster Hall. And it's frankly terrifying. There is a plaque on the floor, uh, a brass plaque, and it says, Here stood King Charles I, condemned to death, 22nd of January, 1648. The whole place reeks of power, and class and privilege (laughs) is me. And I was intimidated. Here's the story of a man intimidated by power. What's surprising is it's Elijah. We normally associate strength with Elijah. The ancient Jewish rabbis taught that Elijah must have been an angel. So spectacular was his ministry. And in the book of James, in the New Testament, James drives a truck through that idea. He affirms Elijah was a man just like us. But he's bewildered and he's confused now. And he's praying short prayers that are not great. Some short prayers are good. You often spot them on Christian refrigerators. St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. That's a good one. Anne Lamont, I like hers. Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. I like that. 
Here's one that probably won't make it to the Christian refrigerator. Lord, I have had enough. Kill me now. <laughs> Amen. Now, this prayer came from a man who'd raised the dead. Just think back over your week. Have you raised the dead? Just think back, you know, Monday, Tuesday. Waking your teenage son up in the morning doesn't count. <laughs> Although it almost takes as much faith. Why had Elijah had enough? For, one, for one thing, he's living at a very difficult time. Every generation seems to think that its challenges are the greatest. But Elijah was really living at a difficult time. For 60 years, Israel had been living in moral and spiritual decay. The golden age of David and Solomon was over. Six kings had come and gone in a 58-year period. They were terrible. And now Ahab, the seventh, is on the throne. And he's described in the Bible as being worse than all of them. And he's married to the infamous Jezebel. She is a nasty piece of work. She is the Cruella de Vil of the Old Testament. The New Bible Dictionary, a British publication, describes Jezebel as a forceful and domineering personality. That's a bit like saying the atom bomb is slightly loud. She was vicious. Her own father killed his own brother to get into power. Now the nation is infested with Baal worship, which included child sacrifice. Those who worshipped the Lord were being persecuted. And now Elijah gets a death threat, a death promise from the palace. And he tumbles into anxiety and depression. If you've been around Timberline for a while, you will have heard me talk about the fact that I've had my own battles in that area. 20 years ago, I spent a year in clinical depression, and it felt bad. I was a Christian leader, writing books and teaching and preaching, and, and felt like I was living in a shadow land. Well, I wasn't feeling like it. I was in a shadow land of depression. And uh, not only did I feel bad, but when you're a Christian, there's an added bonus because I felt bad, and then I felt bad because I felt bad. And, and some of my Christian friends weren't that helpful. They'd previously been employed by Job, and they, <laughs> they'd say, so, Jeff, um, we hear you, you, you haven't got the victory. I say, well, apparently not. Well, what can we do to sort you out? Because some Christians are on a sort-out safari. What can we do to help sort you out? And I felt like saying, how about going away forever? That would be a cracking good start. <laughs> now, here's the thing I wasn't sure I should say this weekend. But I'm going to do it. Because I'm jet-lagged. And if you don't like what I'm about to say, I, Darry Northrup, <laughs> you see, Christian leaders always talk about their challenges historically. Yes, 30 years ago I was tempted, but now I fluorescently glow in the dark. <laughs> Here goes. And I know I'm going to have a Brené Brown vulnerability hangover after this. 
I had a challenging summer emotionally. I took a couple of weeks off and uh, I got miserable. You see, I'm an activist and I've discovered about me that sometimes I hide behind my busyness. It prevents me from having to think about challenges in life. I have to prepare emotionally to go on vacation. Some of you can identify with this. And I, uh, I hit the blues um, this summer. I hope you don't hear that as some kind of self-indulgent statement. I share it with you because I just want to be honest. I think it's a pretty good idea to be honest. Would you agree with me that Christian leadership is not about, it, it, it's about being an example, but it's not about projecting an image. I don't wake up in the morning, do a triple backflip, catching my tambourine as I fly through the air, and the angel Gabriel shows up and says, good morning, Jeff, have a cup of tea. Not iced tea, that's demonic, hot tea. Last weekend, I was in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And I said to this gathered congregation, I said, just to be ever so honest, I didn't want to come today. <laughs> Some of them looked at me like, what? You occasionally walk with a limp as well. When I look in the Bible, I see lots of people who walk with a limp. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Jonah, who stomped out of revival town and sulked and prayed for death. The psalmist, three of the most frequent prayers in the psalms go like this. Why? How long? Where have you gone? The apostle Paul, Paul, he, he, he did pretty well. He gave us a third of the New Testament. Listen to what he said to the Corinthians. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Imagine getting that in a prayer newsletter from a major ministry. Greetings, prayer partners. We've been feeling the sentence of death. Hallelujah. I suggest that Jesus in Gethsemane was depressed. You say, how come? Well, he said, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. The word overwhelmed there is barrio in the Greek. It's the word from which we get the word barometer, pressure, to be pressed down, to be depressed. And there are so many people in Christian history, like General William Booth, who founded the Great Salvation Army, who battled depression. So, so what we're going to do now <laughs> for the next... 14 minutes and 18 seconds. Well, let me assure you that what I'm about to do, I am not going to give you five ways to get out of your cave, beginning with the same letter. <laughs> because I think that would be more depressing. What I'd like to do is just examine this story and see what we can glean. First of all, let's know that life will bring us the gift of disillusionment. Life will bring us the gift of disillusionment. Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. What am I talking about here? Elijah had hopes. Of course he did. What's supposed to happen when you call down fire from heaven? I'll tell you what's supposed to happen. A nation is supposed to turn and repent. And Elijah was surely disappointed. 
But I, I think that we need to make a distinction between disappointment and disillusionment. We talked about this before. Disillusionment is a gift because when we're disillusioned, we are divested of an illusion and we embrace a reality. And again, I've used this illustration. When you, if you were born into a healthy family, you were born into an illusion and the illusion went like this. You're the center of the universe. So when you were a baby, were you hungry? Easy peasy. Just scream. They'll bring you food. When you're a baby, do you need to poop? Some of you are going, um, did, did he just say poop? Did, 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 he, did he just say poop? Yes. This comes from the Greek word, poopousin. I'm messing with you. Some of you wrote that down. You were gonna, you were gonna share that helpful insight with your friends over lunch. When you were a baby, if you need to poop, poop. It'll be taken care of. You try that when you're 25. You see, now you've been divested of an illusion. And I think we've got a lot of illusions about being followers of Jesus. The Jesus who spent three years bringing a ministry of disillusionment to his disciples, who wanted him to be the superhero who would kick the Romans out. But he's headed for a cross. And he spent three years disillusioning the Pharisees who wanted them, him to side with them. Disillusionment can be a gift. Hey, listen, there are Christians in the Bahamas, who got flooded and who died. It's one of the reasons I really want to encourage us to sign up for small groups and get into this exile series on Daniel, a young man forcibly deported to live in a foreign city for the rest of his life. He died there. It was a second-choice life. How do we live life when it's second-choice? Disillusionment is part of the journey. Secondly, fear is the enemy of faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. And it's really interesting, this Jezebel lady, she knew her stuff when it came to fear. So she doesn't send an assassin to kill him. She sends a messenger to tell him that an assassin is going to kill him. She doesn't have to actually murder him. Fear will be enough to take him out. Theological historians have told us that Jezebel would have taken what's called a self-imprecatory oath. She swore on her own life, and it would have been chilling to see it. Watch this. She would have put her finger on her throat in a public place like the palace courts, and she would have said, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you are not like one of those. It was terrifying. Fear. People are afraid these days. In the UK, 21 members of parliament expelled from their party a few days ago. One of them, a friend of mine. And this chaos that's going on. And then the media stokes it up. Uh, did you know... I saw a headline recently. Do you know that there's a death star heading our way? And it's predicted to destroy the earth. I don't know whether you caught the news. And I looked at that and I thought, hmm. Then I read the story. It, they, they think it's going to arrive 
somewhere around 1.3 million years from now. But they didn't mention that in their headline. And I wonder whether Elijah is afraid because he's lost control. Do you know what it is with the remote control on the TV? You're like us, you know, we go away and the remote control, while we're gone, gets up and relocates itself <laughs> under a couch. And then I find it and then I press the button and the batteries are down and I slap it as if that's going to help. And I say unkind things to it. Elijah was like a man with a remote control and faced all kinds of challenges. Hey, Elijah, we need you to prophesy a drought in the land. Got it. Click. We need you to multiply oil in a widow's house. Done. We need you to raise a dead boy to life. You got it. Uh, we need fire to fall from heaven. Okay. And here comes a threat from Jezebel. And he's out of control. His faith becomes a theory. He tells the widow of Zarephath not to be afraid, and now he's afraid. He panics, he runs. He's confused, he runs for his life, and then he prays for death. He's isolated, he dismisses his servant. Again, I want to harp on this without apology. Why do we want to be in small groups? Well, we're not called to do this journey alone. He's immobilized, he sleeps, and his self-talk is paralyzed. Did you notice when I shared the reading that when God said to him twice, what are you doing there, which by the way looks a bit unkind, but I don't think it's unkind at all. God, I believe, was wanting Elijah to speak out his self-talk and realize that he'd got himself into a circular track. He repeats the same speech word for word twice. You know, one of the things we might do this week is to ask the Holy Spirit, are there ruts, tracks in my mind? They're familiar because I go round and round in them. And to ask God's help with fear. Thirdly, thirdly, shame smothers. Shame smothers. He says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. Well, for one thing, whoever said he was any better. But I've noticed, I've been in ministry now for, I don't know, 400 years, and I've noticed that Christians are really good at feeling bad, which is ironic because we're the ones with the good news about forgiveness and grace. Chuck Swindoll says, most folks, it seems, are better acquainted with their guilt and shame than they are with their God. What's the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt's a good thing. If you, don't, if you don't ever get guilty, then you possibly have psychopathic tendencies. And that's not a good thing. But guilt is targeted. Guilt says, that's wrong. You did that wrong. It's laser. But shame is like a bomb. Or to switch the analogy, it's like a smothering blanket. Lewis Smead says, unhealthy shame spills over everything we are. It flops, sloshes, and smears our whole being. And, and here's, here's what happens when we're addicted to shame. We define ourselves by our worst moments. 
Elijah did really well at Zarephath and Cherith and in the palace. Did really well. But now he's fixated on that episode that he feels ashamed about. Another question, another takeaway. Lord, show me what in my history triggers shame not so that I might climb under it again but that I might receive a sense of peace someone said to me but I don't feel forgiven what does it feel like to feel forgiven you get a little trickle down your spine receiving forgiveness is like everything else in the Christian life you accept it by faith shame Number four, feelings sometimes lie. Feelings sometimes lie. Elijah says, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Um, I am colorblind in uh, two colors, black and brown. And um, my colorblindness, actually, I got fired from a job once because I was colorblind. I was a student, and I had a a job cleaning railway carriages and when I had the medical and they found out that I was colorblind, black, brown, they fired me. They said you might be on the tracks and you might not read the signals properly and I just realized yesterday all these years later the signals are red green. (laughs) Hello? Well we have this ancient car in England because for when we're there and we were driving along recently. We've had it for years, probably seven years. And I, I said to Kate, I said, I like this car, but I wish, I don't like the blue interior. I said, every time I get in the car, I just don't like it. She said, honey, it's black. Been black for seven years. You've not liked it for being blue. You see, I'm not seeing what is. And that's what depression can do to you. The French novelist, the Nain said, we don't see things as they are, but as we are. And Elijah is not seeing straight. He says, I've zealously served the Lord God. Correct. Check. But then he says, the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. Step away from that idea, Elijah. They just renewed their covenant with God on Mount Carmel. They've torn down your altars. Yeah, but you forgot, didn't you? They just rebuilt an altar and fire from heaven came. And I'm the only one left. Uh Uh-uh, 7,000. Feelings lie and we don't see straight. In this month of suicide awareness, If you hear today, watching on the internet, are despairing, I want to beg you, do not squander your life for a lie. You say, Pastor Jeff, it's not a lie. It's pretty desperate right now. It may be, but I suggest to you that that depth of despair means that you don't see straight, you don't see hope, you don't see anything changing. I want to talk to young people here. 
we know that suicide has become a massive youth problem. Can I say, please, you can take the test again. You don't have to be the most beautiful or handsome person in the class. And you know that group that's rejected you and you feel so bad. A few years from now, you won't even remember their names. Feelings lie. Well, the last thing is this, and that is that the first step is often the biggest step. The first step is the biggest step. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came. And then Elijah is given three commands. He's given a strategy as he goes back. Anoint Hazel. Who's that? Hazel's a foreign king, the king of Aram. And God's going to use him, or that's the plan, to bring judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel. So anoint that foreign king. And then we need a new king, so anoint Jehu. And you need a friend, Elijah, and a successor, so anoint Elisha. So did Elijah do what he was told? See, I'm so glad the Bible is not a book of superheroes with John Wayne riding off into the sunset. Elijah did anoint Elisha, but he did not anoint Hazel, and 13 years were wasted, another despotic king or two, and Elisha, after Elijah is long gone, anoints Hazel, and he did not anoint Jehu, Elisha did that after Elijah had gone. In other words, God was saying to Elijah, take these steps and he took one, but not three. I wonder, I wonder what the next step is. Is it a step to just carry on? Is it a step to get help? Perhaps professional help? Is it a step to open up to someone that you can trust about what you feel? Is it a step to ask if medication might be appropriate? There are still Christians running around telling depressed Christians that they could never have medication. That's what they told me. That's kind of weird. You break your arm, you put it in a sling. You know what we sometimes do? We kick people when they're down. We make them feel worse. And it might be that that is gonna be a helpful way forward. But as I wrap this up, I'm reminded of a picture of God in the Old Testament where it describes God as the glory and the lifter up of our heads. And I'm looking at you and I can't begin to know your stories. But I pray that if it's dark at the moment, that somehow you will have a sense of the hand of God beneath your chin, lifting your head. 
If I had five ways to get out of the cave, beginning with the same letter, I'd have written the book and it would have been a bestseller. That's not what I bring. But I bring us, us, the truth. That we're not promised that life will always be easy, but we are promised we'll never be alone, never abandoned, that power is available, help is available, comfort is available, strength is available. And as we go to prayer, I'm so conscious at this moment that my task is not to just preach a message. But to pray that the Holy Spirit would take the word of God and birth hope and grace and strength. So Father, look at your people some of whom are in the best season of their lives and soaring, and we thank you for that. Others who struggle, be the lifter of their heads. Blow on the embers of hope that have faded and dimmed. Work your work. Show us what steps are needed and then give us courage to pursue those steps. Thank you for your gentle presence here today. give you thanks Lord and there are any here today Father who don't know you may this be the first step that they take and let me pause in this prayer if you're not a follower of Jesus I invite you to become one to turn your life over to him right now not just to ask for his help but to say God I need you I need you to take charge in my life to forgive me to cleanse me I want to accept your forgiveness for my shame. Jesus died on the cross to enable that. Right where you're seated, here in the auditorium, watching online, could be a moment of you stepping out of the cave of your independence and turning your life over to him. So work your work in us, we pray. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen.